So why don't we stand together and read, starting in Matthew, chapter 19, verse 1. Matthew 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce? And send her away. And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Let's pray. Lord, um, we are coming into one of the most uh, important subjects in the Christian community and also in the world. And uh, we all know that divorce is rampant and remarriage is rampant in our culture. I mean, the stats are probably somewhere around 50%, but people live in common law, so the stats would be even higher if we consider common law relationships to be marriages. And so we know that virtually hardly anybody's really keeping it together in relationships, God. I know from a stat I just heard that the average marriage lasts 14 years in Canada. So it's not a very long time, God. So this is a really important topic for us as Christians. We need to know what you say about this. And you know that you've been shaping my understanding of your word for a number of years now, at least 15 in the making, and every year you teach me something new. So I pray, God, that uh, as I relay your truth to the church, that, that only your truth come forward and anything that I have to say that is of no value or not true, that it be removed from my mind. Uh, we pray, God, for our time together, and we look forward to what we have to learn from you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today I want to talk to you about what God says about divorce and remarriage. And I approach this topic with fear and trembling for a couple of reasons. First, divorce and remarriage is a complex issue, it's a multifaceted issue. Case in point, even though I've spent probably more time in this subject studying than any other issue in, Christian, uh, in the Christian faith, I still recognize that every year I have more and more to learn. And every year I've had to make more and more changes as the scriptures have revealed more and more truths to me. And so coming to this issue with, for me is, is interesting because I do recognize that I, I do have more to learn and I'm constantly making changes in my understanding of the scriptures. So with that I come in fear and trembling. Even this week I had to make a change. I was actually planning to preach to you without notes. I thought. I know the subject inside and out, I've studied it for 10, 15 years, I'm just going to come in, no notes, just free willy, go for it, and I'll have no problems. 
And I thought, well, I'll just double check and do something last minute. I'll just uh, go back and do some more work. And I ended up spending hours upon hours upon hours back in the subject, and I'm glad I did, because I realized I had made, probably had made a mistake in my understanding of one passage in the Old Testament. Another reason I approach this with fear and trembling is due to the sensitive nature of this topic. And you know what I'm talking about. I bet you there's not one of you in this church that has not been impacted by some kind of divorce or remarriage. I bet you there's not one of you who has not been impacted, either in your family or friends. And you know the complexity of the emotions that that brings when you see that those happening in families. It's a very emotional issue and people have a lot of experiences in it and therefore a lot of opinions on what should be done based on their emotional hurts. I realize the intensity of studying this, this week alone. Um, I went to Tim Hortons and I was studying and after a couple hours I stood up and I was, my body was trembling like this. I'm like, what is going on here? I was so emotionally committed to the subject because of the... Uh, the nature of the topic that I, my body was reacting because of the emotions of it. And even more funny, I got home and I felt like somebody was like licking me under the armpit. I'm like, what in the world? And I look up and I had this big pie pit of stain under my arm. And I'm like, what's that from? I'm like, holy cow, that's from studying the Word of God. <laughs> I never sweat. Ask my wife. She says, I, like, I love you, Andrew, because you're the least smelly guy I know. You never sweat. <laughs> and the funny thing was that I went public skating for an hour at the rec set or at the Scott Seaman Arena for an hour, came home and had no pie pits after skating for an hour. And here I am studying marriage and divorce. And here I have these big pie pits under my arms. So let me just say, I recognize it's an emotional issue. However, even though I, I uh, recognize that I come to you in fear and trembling, I know it needs to be addressed in the church. And I can't run from the issue just because I'm emotionally uncomfortable about it. But I do ask one thing of you. And you guys haven't seen these for a while, but I've brought them back. Um, I'll put them on in a second. But... All of you have come in here with presuppositions about what to do in, the, in a situation when marriage is tough. If I took every single one of you and said, what do you think, should that person divorce, should they not divorce, should they remarry, should they remarry, you'd all tell me straight up what you think. So you've all come with a theological position on marriage. <laughs> right? You haven't seen these babies for a while. So when you come to the Word of God, you're going to be reading it with these lenses on. Because you've already got your mind made up about what's going to be said. And you already think you know based on personal experience. So I ask you to take the glasses off. You want that picture there, Kevin? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it usually says Reformed Theology on there. <laughs> We'll do that in another sermon. That's another topic. But uh, yeah, you've all got glasses, and I did too. And I took them off this week, and I'm so glad I did, because when I preach to you today, I'm going to be more accurate in the truth because of it. So I ask you just to take the glasses off, and just allow the Word of God to speak to you, and we can all, if you, those, your, your concerns can come out in the dialogue, and we can deal with those there. So I realized I've done a long introduction and waggled on the tee for a long time, but those are necessary comments, I believe, for me to make. So let's jump in. Let's read verses 1 to 3. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. 
and large crowds followed him and healed him there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? The first thing we need to observe is who's asking Jesus the question? Who's asking? It's the Pharisees, his arch enemies, the people that hate him and want him dead. Their problem was this. Jesus had become so popular with the people that they knew if they took Jesus' life and executed them, that a potential revolt would break out against them because the people would side with Jesus and go against the Pharisees and they didn't want to lose popularity. So they were afraid of taking Jesus out. So they were constantly looking for ways to trap him in hopes that they would lose, he would lose favor with the crowds and they could take action against him. Now the particular question they asked Jesus in verse 3 was designed as a test. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? What they were trying to do is pit Jesus eventually against the law of Moses. Because if they could get Jesus to answer in opposition to Moses, which they expected him to do, by the way, then the crowds would turn on him because how dare he claim to be the Christ and yet oppose God's right-hand man, Moses. So here's the test. They're going to eventually ask him questions so that they can hear him speak out against Moses because they believe they have the right interpretation of the law of Moses. And Jesus is going to expose that later on we're going to see that they actually have the wrong interpretation so therefore he doesn't lose favor with the crowds. He actually makes them look like a bunch of clowns in the end. Now when you come to this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his reason for any reason at all? What is the normal thing you think of for why someone would get divorced in our culture? What's the normal thing you think about? Adultery. Abuse. Okay. So, pardon me? Unhappy? Yeah. But typically, the number one issue that we often think it's okay to get divorced for was what, is what though? Unfaithfulness. It's an automatic. You're out, right? Let me just say this. The Pharisees are not thinking that. The Pharisees are not asking this. Can I get out for adultery? They're not asking that question. And let me substantiate that for you. Whatever they thought, whatever their list of reasons were, adultery was not on their list. Because in the Jewish culture, they understood that any sexual sin that violated the marriage bed was to be punished by death. Look at this with me here, church. Leviticus chapter 20. This is what it says about adultery in verse 10. If there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and adulteress should be put to death. Incest. Verse 12. If there's a man who lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall be put to death. They've committed incest. Homosexuality. Verse 13. If there's a man who lies with a male, as those, as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, they shall be put to death. Bestiality. If there's a man who lies with an animal, he shall be put to death. You shall also kill the animal. And one other area, which was, so that's within the marriage covenant. This is another area outside of the marriage covenant. If you cheated in your, on your spouse, in the engagement, they were to be put to death. Or if they came to you and had lied about them being a virgin, you were to be put to death. So I call this category undisclosed premarital activity. Look at Deuteronomy 22. But if this charge is true, the charge being that she was found not to be a virgin, that the girl was not to be a virgin, then they shall bring out the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death, because she has committed an act of folly in Israel by, by playing the harlot. 
This is the key, church. This is going to be important for later. All of these sins were, so all of these sins were considered to be, were defined as sexual immorality in the Bible, okay? So adultery, incest, homosexuality, bestiality, undisclosed premarital activity are all considered and all constituted to be sexually immoral, which is an important observation later. So again, the Pharisees aren't saying, can we get out for incest? Can we get out for adultery? Can we get out for bestiality? Can we get out for these things? Of course not, for any reason at all other than these things, because they're going to be dead. Case in point, we know their attitude towards it. In John chapter 8, the woman is caught in adultery, and what do they want to do to her? Give, throw her a birthday party? Stone her. The Pharisees are like, Jesus, what do you say? Should we stone her? So we already know their attitude towards sexual sin outside of the marriage bed. That's an important. So whether they were going to follow through with stoning her or not is not the issue. Because what we learned about the Pharisees from this passage is their understanding of what the law required of them in relation to the marriage covenant. If you violated it, you would die. It's again important to say this because when they're asking can we get out for any reason at all, they're asking for reasons other than adultery. So what were those reasons? What were those reasons? You're going to find this list shocking. This comes from commentaries that I've read, that I, sources of men that I really trust in the Word of God, and, uh, and uh, conversations I've had with people who are sort of experts in Jewish, um, Jewish understanding of culture. This, these are some of the reasons in the Pharisaic law in the time of Jesus why you could divorce your wife. You ready? If a woman loosened her hair in public, Talk to another man in public. Ruined your supper. Spun around so fast that someone saw her ankles. Yeah, spoke badly about her mother-in-law. <laughs> All of you would be dead women, wouldn't you? <laughs> it's okay for the man. It's okay for the man, yeah. It's permitted for the man to do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Another subject. Handle that the discussion. Um, you were obligated to divorce her if she was infertile. Couldn't have children. Obligated. And you could also divorce if you met someone else you preferred. Okay? This is the list that they're saying, Jesus, can we do this for? That's only a few. Alright? So, what was Jesus' answer to this question? Absolutely no way, Jose. <laughs> Look at verse 3. Oh, sorry, 4 onward. And he said to them, Have you not read what, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus gave three reasons for why they were not permitted to divorce for any reason at all, outside of sexual morality. One, marriage was God's design. Marriage is God's design. Look at verse 4 with me. Again, listen to this. He answered and said, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning? And look at verse 6b. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. He created marriage. He joined them together. Jesus is saying marriage was God's idea. This was not man's idea. So therefore the Pharisees didn't have the permission to undo and get rid of a wife when it was God's joining of them in the first place. 
And he, they couldn't go in and redefine what marriage was. Divorcing and taking other spouses was against its design. It was God, and they were trying to redefine it for him. Secondly, marriage was designed with a specific intent. Look at verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He made them male and female. What's the intent of marriage? It was always to be one man and one woman. So polygamy was out of the question. It was one man, one woman. It was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Okay? So it's one man, one woman. The Pharisees, by divorcing and remarrying, are breaking God's intentions because they're taking on more and more wives. It was always supposed to be just one on one, and they're going, they're divorcing, taking another, divorcing, taking another. They were breaking God's specific intent for marriage. Three, marriage was designed to be permanent. Permanent. This is a quote from Genesis 2.24 in verses 5. He says this, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now the purpose of marriage here, God makes perfectly clear, or Jesus makes perfectly clear here. It was designed to be permanent. You were to leave and cleave your family of origin, break that family bond, and start a new bond and a new family over here. And, when you, and to these two individuals, although you're separate beings, you're to come together and make one family unit. You're to make one family unit. And you were to view that as like a permanent glue. Your bond was to be glued together. You're, to be, you're two individuals, but united as one in body, mind, and spirit. And so the, the Pharisees, again, were not making marriage permanent. They were breaking God's design. So Jesus was saying this. Any reason at all, Pharisees? You're forbidden to undo the work of God. Now, you know what's crazy, church? The Pharisees wanted out for any reason at all. Yet marriage was so sacred to God, as we've already seen, that not only did the sexual violation call for the death penalty of it, even having the desire to break up a marriage is forbidden, forbidden in, the, in the Old Testament. Did you know that? Is this something I learned? I don't know why I missed this my whole life, but I learned something new this week. See, do you remember what the Tenth Commandment is? Does anyone know what the Tenth Commandment is in the Law of Moses? You shall not... Pardon? Covet. You shall not covet. Covet who? Yeah? Or his donkey. Or his donkey. Yeah. Well, you're you're laughing at Jordan. The guy's scripturally bang on. Look at verse 2017. You, yeah, <laughs> you heretic. <laughs> you should, to Exodus 20:17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or male, female servant, or his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to you or your neighbor. You see, how many times have you heard this? Jesus uh, in Matthew 5 said, "Don't lust after a woman," and therefore, uh, you know, redefine the law. It was always in the law. The Old Testament people were always supposed to function as if they weren't desiring someone else's spouse. <laughs> you were not to covet your neighbor's wife. You're not to covet her. So even in the Old Testament, marriage is serious to God. You are not only to be committed to your spouse in body, you're to be committed to them in your mind. In your mind. You weren't even to desire another spouse. But the Pharisees had missed that. They missed that. You can get out for any reason at all. If I desire someone else for spinning, or if my wife spins around or shows her ankles and I desire someone else, I can get rid of her. Or even breaking the 10th commandment. 
There's a lesson in here for us, church, and how we're to view the permanence of our marriages. You see, divorce is not an option for us for what I call irreconcilable differences. The any reason at all category here is not for sexual morality. It's for what we call irreconcilable differences. And we're learning something here. We're to be committed in both body and mind to our marriages. Many of you know Dan Sudfeld. Uh, I wasn't married yet when I... I just got married when I knew him. And then he left for Wetaskiwin. But I was a new Christian in the E-Free Church. And Dan said something to me that like, really changed my, my perspective on how to meet my eventual partner. Which was going to be a Janice, which I didn't know at the time. Dan told me one-on-one, -on -one, he says, Andrew, when I got married to Marlene in our engagement, before we got married, he said, in our engagement, I said to Marlene, and she said to me, we will never in our marriage use the word divorce in our family, no matter how crappy things get. That word will never come up in our family. And I'm a young, impressionable guy, I'm in my 20s, and I'm like, holy cow, I'd like to live by that moral code. So when I got together with Denise, I made a pact that we would never use the word divorce in our house. Never. No matter how things bad, how bad they got. There were nights I slept in my gym on the massage table when she slept in the bed. There were nights I slept on the couch. There were nights we had screaming matches. And it was just all over the place and just absolutely chaotic in our family in the first couple of years. We never in those screaming matches and me sleeping in separate rooms ever used the word divorce in our house. Because Dan taught me something very important, which is what Jesus is teaching here. That we were committed in mind and body to those marriages. And I don't know where you're at in your families and how you speak to one another, but if divorce is even on the table for you as a Christian, get rid of that word in your family. <laughs> get rid of it. Commit fully in your body and your mind. Now at this point... In the conversation, the Pharisees must have felt like they had Jesus in the corner and really had the upper hand on him. You see, if he thought it was permanent and this was, there was no option out, he had had a major problem on his hand. He had just contradicted Moses. Look at verse 7. They said to him, why then, if it's permanent, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. The Pharisees were quoting from Deuteronomy 24. They had believed in Deuteronomy 24 that Moses had commanded. It was a command that you could get rid of your wives if you wrote her a certificate. Jesus here reinterprets it and says, actually... He never commanded it, he permitted it. He only permitted it, he never commanded it. So it was a second option. God's primary design was permanence, but, he, but something was going on in Israel, so he had to permit it. So the, really the issue here now is whose, whose understanding, interpretation of the Mosaic Law is correct. And for that, we have to actually turn as a church to Deuteronomy 24 to handle this. Okay? You need to know what the issues are between Jesus and the Pharisees. So Deuteronomy 24. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Page 186. <laughs> Just kidding. It's not bad at all. It's page 278. Callie, there you go. And Evan, I know you have the same Bible. 
Oh, uh, first one. Let's read this as a church. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has some, found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Alright, pretty big mouthful there. In order, in order to understand this passage, we have to understand what's going on. And I want to focus in on the word indecency, because the Pharisees believe that you can divorce for indecency. And Jesus says, no, you can never divorce for indecency. It was only permitted. It wasn't a command. It was permitted. So what's the word indecency mean? In Hebrew, the word is erva. Okay? Usually that word is used to describe someone's nakedness. Okay? Someone's nakedness. But it's also used to describe something shameful and unholy. Shameful and unholy. Look at Deuteronomy 23, and you're going to laugh at this, but it's actually used to describe, this same word is used to describe how an Israelite was to, to deal with a dump they took in the land of Israel. <laughs> okay? They had a turd, and they had to dispose of it. It's referred to being indecent. Look at chapter 23. See, people go to seminary to learn proper words. I can just use words like turd, because I'm not educated. All right, so Deuteronomy 23, uh, verse 12. It says, you shall have a place outside the camp and go out there, and you shall have a spade among your tools, and it shall be when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it, and you shall turn it to cover it up your excrement. Since the Lord, your God, works in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy, and he must not see anything indecent among you, or he will turn away from you. Okay? So in the context here, if, uh, the, to have like a turd in the middle of the Israelite camp, because that's where God lives, is something indecent. It's shameful. It's unholy. It's unholy. So here's what I used to think years ago when I first discovered this. I used to think, I know what it is. If it's shameful and unholy and refers to nakedness, I know what's happened. The guy has found her not to be a virgin when they got married, and therefore he can divorce her for those reasons. I know no, now that's wrong. Why? Look at this list. Undisclosed premarital activity, you're to be stoned. So therefore, I learned that years, like just you know, a couple years ago, that it can't be for lack of virginity. The indecency has to be something else he discovered in her nakedness that is outside of losing her virginity. So the way I understood the passage went something like this. When the Pharisees came and said to Jesus, can we divorce for any reasons at all? I used to think the answer was this. Jesus said, no, you cannot divorce for any reason at all. There's only one area that you can divorce for, and that's indecency. If the man finds something that's uh, unholy in her. But now Jesus, because he's fulfilling the law, is now saying, but by the way, even when that was done, that was hard-hearted divorce. And so now I'm raising the bar in you Pharisees. I'm no longer allowing that. I now actually see that as the wrong interpretation. 
I'm going to, so in other words, in that interpretation, the woman is guilty of something. She's done something in the marriage to bring indecency, something shameful into the marriage bed, and therefore di divorce, although not God's preference, is permitted. Okay? I actually think that's the wrong interpretation now. I actually think this command here is designed to protect, that's not command, the permission for divorce in this context is actually to protect the woman. So she's not guilty, she's actually protecting the female. Protecting the female. Where in the world would I come up with that? <laughs> okay. Apparently, according to some of the resources I've looked up, divorce was rampant in that day. Divorce was rampant. Now, even without knowing that, I can suggest to you that the passage actually tells us that lots of divorce is going on in that culture. Going on in that culture. So what's happening here is that the man, there's no command here for a man to divorce his wife. It's merely describing what to do in a bad situation. Look at this with me here. Look at verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes. Look at verse um, 3. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Now what's interesting is that turns against her word in verse 3. It's actually in some translations hates. So what do we have going on here? We have men trading these women in like baseball cards. We have one guy who, and it's not God who finds in favor, sorry, it's not God that's describing her indecency, it's the man that finds no favor in her. It's the man who thinks that there's something unholy in her, something shameful in her. So, he's, so this man finds her to be unfavorable because she spins around and shows her ankles. So he divorces her and sends her out with a certificate. And then the next husband that marries her doesn't like her because she loosens her hair, and so he gets rid of her as well. So what's happening? The women are getting tossed around to and fro in the culture with no protection. No protection. So what does God and Moses try to do? They have to come up with a plan to protect her. So how does this work? Okay, what does a woman in that culture do who has been thrown out of her house and kicked on the streets? What's her only options for survival? Pardon me? Yeah? She becomes a prostitute or destitute? There's her only options. Prostitute or destitute. But there's a third option. She can, if another man finds her and takes kindly to her and her children, he can take her in and marry her to protect her and provide her. But here's why he can't do that. <laughs> she's still married technically in God's eyes because she's been divorced for reasons other than adultery. So she's still technically married. She's still technically married. Secondly, the man can't take her in because if he knows she's married, he takes her in. He's guilty of a capital offense. So she, she can't get remarried as a destitute woman because she'll be committing adultery. But he can't take her either because he'll be committing adultery if he takes her in. And it's a punishable death. But, but God, God and Moses are looking at this going, this is an absolute tragedy. These women should never be divorced in the first place. These men are divorcing them for stupid reasons. So we've got to contain this problem. We've got to contain this problem. So I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll put a certificate in place, permit it to be allowed as a means of legally freeing this woman from the marriage contract and for the man to take her in. And this is exactly what happens in the case of Boaz and Ruth in chapter 2. You remember the story? No, this, no Moses, uh, Ruth though, is not divorced. She's widowed. But she's widowed and she's doing what? She's in the fields of Boaz picking in the corners of the field the, the, the harvest 
like the, the leftover grains, because why? She has no money. And so it, there was in the law that if you are uh, the poor and the needy and the widows and the orphans could go into the corners of the fields and the Israelites were not for to leave that harvest for the people to eat. So Ruth is in there as a, as a widowed woman with nothing because her husband's gone. And she's in Boaz's fields trying to get taken care of from the provisions of the law. Boaz finds her and takes favor in her and says, I want to marry you. And now she's provided for. Now, that, she's widowed and she's destitute. Imagine being a divorced woman in that culture, uh, what, your, what your future looked like. And so God's like, we have to protect these women. Let's put a certificate in, of play, in place as a permission. But here's why. It was permitted because these men were rotten, filthy, scoundrel sinners. They're hard-hearted. They're getting rid of their wives for stupid, petty reasons. And in, in, this, in chapter 24 here, there's no command to divorce your wife. The only command, if there is a command, is in verse 4. He says, if a man does this, and a man does this, and a man does this, then he says in verse 4, then, here's the thing, he can't take her back if she gets remarried, and then he divorces her. So the only, the only command there, and for there, if there is any, is you can't take a wife back who you've divorced for petty reasons if he divorces her for petty reasons. That's a defilement. Why? Because now you're committing... Uh, well, I won't get into why. But the point being is that there's no command to divorce. But, the, but the, the, the Mosaic or the Pharisees' interpretation of this law was that because of certificates in place, I can get rid of her. And Moses allowed this, like, right, left, right, and center. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Well, hold on, boys. He never commanded this to occur. Never did he command it. It was because of hard hearts of the, the men back then. And he's actually... He, he actually puts the Pharisees in a bad place publicly in front of the crowds because he says to them, you're actually guilty of being hard-hearted people and you're just like your forefathers, your filthy, rotten scoundrels. <laughs> I bet you they wish they never asked Jesus that question after that. So then Jesus raises the ante even more. He then says this to them in verse 9 of Matthew. Let's go back there. Now, I realize I just said a lot. Uh, we can, if, I, if I didn't make a lot of sense to you, we can clear up the, the discrepancies in the dialogue. I spent virtually my whole week on that part of the, the passage because this is something that I learned to be new. Look at verse 9. Look at Jesus raised the ante. He says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. You know, the Pharisees wanted to know if they could get divorced and remarried for any reason at all. And Jesus says, if you do this, you'll be guilty of adultery. If you divorce her for any reason, and then you go and marry another woman, you are guilty of adultery. A, a capital offense in the Old Testament. But Jesus did make it clear. There's one exception. There's one exception when if you divorce your wife, and marry another, you won't be committing adultery. He says, for immorality. Now, what's that word? In Greek, it means porneia. The word porneia is any sexually illicit activity outside of the marriage bed. Go back to here. Jesus says this. If, you divorce, if your spouse commits adultery, incest, homosexuality, bestiality, against you, undisclosed privilege activity is maybe a bit different in our culture, but that's another conversation. <laughs> But if you do those four things, 
He says, and you divorce another, or you marry another, or you go and get remarried, you're not guilty of adultery. But if you divorce for any reasons outside of these things, you are guilty of adultery. And here's the key, church. He's speaking to perpetrators of divorce, not victims. You catch that? This is not a passage teaching victims what to do. This is a passage teaching perpetrators what to do and what they're guilty of if they go and do this to their, to their victim spouses. Jesus views sexually innocent spouses as have not, done nothing wrong that could warrant a divorce. And it's clear from this verse that remarriage after divorcing an adulterous spouse is not adultery for that individual. Why do I need to say this? Because not all Christians believe this. Not all Christians believe this. Here's what some people believe. If you get divorced for any reason at all, if, oh sorry, if you're the victim of adultery, you are guilty of remarriage, or you're guilty of adultery if you get remarried. So in other words, I don't care if you're the perpetrator or innocent, you're guilty of adultery if you get remarried. There's some Christians that hold that view. Here's the key, church. In the Old Testament, if you were a victim of adultery, your spouse was to be stoned. Once that spouse was stoned, you are free to remarry. You're free to remarry in the Old Testament if your spouse is killed. In the New Testament, why aren't spouses killed if they commit adultery? Because Jesus takes the sin on his back and fulfills the law on the cross. All the Old Testament's punishable laws fell on his back. So the only, in our culture, the reason why we live for adultery, if we live for adultery, is because Jesus has created uh, a means by which the penalties can be taken, and so you are allowed to live. You're allowed to live for this. So here's the point. If God shows mercy to perpetrating spouses today by allowing them to live, why would then the victim be punished the rest of their life by having to remain single if they want to get remarried? If the law was in effect today, that person would be dead and they'd be free to... Re, uh, they'd be, um, yeah, if the law was in effect today from the Old Testament, that person would be dead and that per, the, the victim would be free to marry. So, if, so why then, why would God be able to show mercy to, one, to the one and then become a burden to the other? God's mercy to one cannot become a burden to the other. If you're free in the Old Testament, you'd have to be free in the New Testament. The only difference is Jesus paid the sin, not you, as you would in the Old Testament. The parallels are identical. So, does that mean then in cases where adultery occurs in a marriage, it's right for a victim to pursue divorce? I'm just going to ask the question because you're probably thinking it anyway. Well, Jesus doesn't answer that in Matthew. But if you look at this character and think through the rest of Scripture, you can come up with that answer. See, as followers of Christ, we are to be known as people who are willing to forgive others and seek reconciliation. Nowhere in the forgiveness of sins does he say, well, except for when someone commits adultery against you. <laughs> Remember the Lord's Prayer? Matthew 6, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we 
forgive those who sinned against us. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 13.5 Love does not take into account wrongs suffered. It doesn't say you don't forget wrongs suffered, but you treat the person as if the sin was not held against them. God's choice would always be reconciliation and forgiveness. And that's the way we always counsel in this church. If, any, if adultery ever occurred in our church, I would say first to you, and so what the elders in training would say, reconcile, seek reconciliation, try to make this work. Especially in the cases where the spouse has shown genuine remorse and repentance and is committed to the marriage family and the unit. So I'll leave you with one question then. Is there a time, any time in the scriptures in which I think a person could divorce her spouse in cases of adultery and still be acting in accordance with God's way? The answer to that will be found out next week. <laughs> we'll do with that question only next week. All right, let's get into some lessons. I have to give you a reason to come back, you know. I can't just tell you. It's not for your good jokes. Or my good glasses. All right, lesson number one. Although divorce was permitted by Moses in the New Old Testament, it was never part of God's original design nor commanded by him. It's important, church. The Pharisees say Moses commanded us to do this. And Jesus says, no, he didn't. He permitted it. It was their way of containing an epidemic in Israel. These hard-hearted men were divorcing their wives, batting her around back and forth. You know, you find, if you find no favor in her and you write a certificate, and, if, if the next, and the next husband, like later on, the second husband, then finds no favor and gets rid of her as well. This poor woman is getting thrown around from family to family to family because he's finding petty reasons to divorce her. What I call irreconcilable differences in our culture. And Jesus, and, and, and God, Jesus, like Pharisees, he never commanded that. All he said in that Deuteronomy 24 passage was this. If you go and do this, you can just never take her back. That's all he said there. He never permitted divorce or commanded divorce. He said, if you go and do this, you just can't take her back again if she's divorced. Can't take her back. It's unholy. That's a massive for me personally because that's something new that I learned this week. That I didn't know before, and I would not if I'd not done. I would have taught you the um, probably incorrectly if I'd done that work. Second, even in the Old Testament, God commanded spouses to be faithful to the marriage covenants in both mind and body. Again, super important because we always think in Matthew five, Jesus says, "Oh, don't you know? I say to you, if it looks at a woman with lust in his eyes, committed adultery." We think that's new teaching. Well, it had to be reiterated to the Israelites because they're slow to understand. But in the 10th commandment, he says, don't covet. Coveting starts in the brain. You don't just physically start coveting. You, everything gets played out in your mind and then you move towards coveting. And so he's saying, I want you to be committed to your marriages both in your body and in your mind in the Old Testament. And that's really important. And it's the same for us too. Same for us too. We can wander in two different ways in marriages. We can wander physically and go off to another person in a sexual way. But we can also wander emotionally. 
When we start thinking, what would it be like to be with somebody else? What would it be like to be somebody else? Oh, I wish I could be with them. I wish I could have my, I wish my husband was like him. I wish my wife was like her. And all of a sudden our minds are off and coveting starts in the brain and then moves into action. So it goes from mind to body. And that's the thing, church. He, God wants us to be committed in the Old Testament and the New Testament to our marriages in both ways. Lesson number three. Those who divorce their sexually innocent spouses are guilty of adultery when they choose to get remarried. So I worded that very carefully. Those who divorce their sexually innocent spouses are guilty of adultery when they choose to get married. So if you're the perpetrator of divorce and your wife or husband has not cheated on you and you go and get remarried, you commit adultery in Jesus' eyes. Again, speaking to perpetrators here, not victims. And these, these issues we call irreconcilable differences. So if you divorce your wife or husband because they can, you feel like they don't emotionally bond to you well, or they're always sloppy in the house and don't pick up their clothes, or they're not really a great parent in your eyes, or you know, like, like they have a little bit of an anger problem, these are, these, are, these are issues which are irreconcilable differences to God. There's no sexual sin in those issues. Now here's clear though, I want to make this comment too. Perpetrators are not guilty of adultery though if they choose to stay single. Divorcing your spouse doesn't make you commit adultery. If a perpetrator decides to divorce for innocent, for, for irreconcilable differences, they're not guilty of adultery if they stay single. And I'm actually going to talk about this in 1 Corinthians 7. What are the options for someone who does perpetrate divorce for irreconcilable differences? What does God say about that? We're going to get into that in the third sermon. I'm going to do a three-part series on this. That's in, that'll be in two weeks from now. Okay. Lesson number four. Victims of an adulterous spouse are not guilty of adultery if they choose to get remarried after a divorce occurs. Again, if you're a victim of a spouse who's committed adultery on you, you're not guilty of adultery yourself if you choose to get remarried after a divorce. I know that might be hard for some of you to hear because you have this view that you're, no matter what you do in marriage, you're, you're, you're a perpetrator if you get remarried and you commit adultery. I don't think that's clear at all. Jesus says, except for immorality. And we define what immorality was in the Old Testament. Those sins. Fifth. Jesus considers any divorce over irreconcilable differences to be hard-hearted and forbids remarriage for either partner. That's a massive one. That's a hard one. Massive one. Important one. That's Okotoks in a nutshell. If we get divorced for irreconcilable differences, Jesus says, you guys have hard hearts and you cannot get remarried in that circumstance. You can't. 1 Corinthians 7 tells you what you're to do in that situation. And finally, Eve, oh, what happened there? I don't know how that happened. Sorry about that. Obviously, it's my fault. Even in cases where adultery occurs, God's preference still would be that both parties seek for reconciliation. Okay? So just because, oh, we could think, well, it says here, if I divorce 
if my spouse cheats on me, I can get remarried, or I can go off with someone else. It doesn't say that there. It just says, it doesn't say that at all. Jesus isn't teaching him about what to do after remarriage here. He's just simply saying this, if you're perpetrating, you go and get remarried for um, irreconcilable differences, you'll be guilty of adultery. But he doesn't tell the victim they have rights to go ahead then and just divorce them. He doesn't teach that here. His way is still to, for preference for reconciliation to occur. However, like I said at the end, are there cases in which adultery occurs in which God would still would be probably in favor of a of a potential divorce? That is next week's sermon's platform. Massive teaching here from Jesus to the Pharisees. And uh, with fear and trembling, let's enter into a discussion.